And you are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. The time is just about one minute past 10 o'clock. And stay tuned for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our 2012 series to be broadcast at this time on the second Monday of each month. We're going to feature topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about free speech, money, and democracy. We'll be discussing the constitutional background and the practical outcomes for democracy of granting personhood to corporations and equating political spending with free speech. Later in the program, we'll be welcoming your calls with questions or comments. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests today. Joining us by telephone is Jeff Clements. Jeff is an attorney and author. He's the co-founder of Free Speech for People and author of the new book, Corporations Are Not People. Uh, by coincidence, he's a 1984 graduate of Colby College. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Anne. Good to be here. Where are you calling from today? I'm in Concord, Massachusetts. Today. Not so far away. Not so far. Also joining us by phone today is Sheila Krumholtz. Sheila is executive director of the Center for Responsive Politics, also known as OpenSecrets.org the nation's premier research group tracking money in U.S. politics and its effect on elections and public policy. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much. A recent poll by Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner shows that the two-year-old Supreme Court decision in Citizens United is intensely unpopular, with 62% of voters opposing the ruling. Indeed, it does sometimes seem that Justice Stevens, in his Citizens United dissent, hit the nail on the head when he said that the only people who don't think there's too much money in politics are the five Supreme Court justices who issued that majority ruling. How did we get here? Jeff, let me put it to you first. What was the original intent of corporate personhood? Did the original intent have anything to do with free speech? How did it come about? that corporations have the same free speech rights as people and um, that they can spend like they have been in political campaigns? Uh, well, Anne, the, um, the long version is in my book, Corporations <laughs> Are Not People. And uh, I'll try to do the short version, um, which is really the, there's no such thing as original intent about corporate personhood. Uh, the founders of the Constitution uh, we're, we're quite clear that um, when they said, we the people, and when the people who ratified the Constitution said, we the people in the Constitution, they meant, we the people, human beings. And uh, there was a lot of distrust, even then, of, of the benefits and privileges that corporations get from government, and a recognition that these might be useful economic entities uh, um, to be used um, as, as matters of government policy, really, for economic purposes, but that we had to keep an eye on them so they wouldn't leverage that, those advantages and the economic might into political power and political corruption. 
And that's what made Citizens United the case that struck down the McCain-Feingold law uh, that had gone really back, uh, its predecessor, back to the Tillman Act in 1907 to keep corporate spending out of our elections uh, because it, it was a sort of age-old American uh, way of trying to ensure that we had free and fair elections. And we had problems with money in politics, no question, before Citizens United. But to open it up to uh, multi-billion dollar global corporations in a way that we're not allowed to regulate, uh, which is what Citizens United did, is a radical departure um, from what the Constitution is all about. I had heard it said, and I'm not sure I've got my facts straight, though, that there was some 19th century decision that where uh, a clerk kind of mistranscribed what actually happened that kind of opened the door to this. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Or Yeah, you're talking about the Santa Clara decision in uh, 18... 18- Ooh, 1870s, I believe, maybe 1890s. Uh, but essentially, uh, there, there, there was a round of cases at the turn of the century, really the last Gilded Age, uh, much like our own, where corporate power was pushing, 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 trying to uh, essentially take over government power. Uh, and it was the railroad corporations then and the other big trusts, uh, as they were called, the big monopolies that, that grew up around the turn of the century. And after the Civil War, and we had a, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment uh, to ensure the right to vote of all people, regardless of their um, race, uh, when we ensured the rights, equal protection rights and due process rights for all people, regardless of race, essentially a, a rebuilding of our democracy after the Civil War, uh, with the, the corporations looked at, the corporate lawyers looked at the words used in that, those amendments and said, person. And they started hammering away at this argument that we are persons, corporations are persons, so we have these constitutional rights that can strike down laws that are so-called unequal to corporations. But the, you know, the point I make in the book is that's, not, that's really part of American history and democracy, is corporations are going to do that, and we need to be vigilant, and the courts need to be vigilant about balancing and checking uh, that misuse of the Constitution and I think we did. Um, the progressives, uh, you know, they, they had four amendments, in this, constitutional amendments in the space of 10 years. They had antitrust laws. They had a wave of, of reform and then eventually um, culminating with the New Deal and FDR's court packing plan to really reverse the idea that corporations have constitutional rights that can trump economic policy decisions of, of the people. Uh, and now what we're seeing with Citizens United, is that's really the end game of a modern version of, of what happened in the last Gilded Age that we've had for the last 25 to 30 years. Again, corporations asserting power under the Constitution to overrule the people's choices about economic policy. This time it's under the notion of corporate speech, corporate voices. It's sort of a, a new metaphor, which is still about corporate personhood, but it's a little bit different, and it's been very effective striking down economic laws, uh, worker protection laws, uh, civil rights laws, public health laws, and then finally, the, the, as, I, as I think of it, the end game are election laws in Citizens United. As it relates to campaign finance, just give our listeners, if you would, sort of a brief 101 of the landmark decisions that are affecting the playing field right now. I know Buckley v. Vallejo was one. Obviously, we've got Citizens United, and then there, there's kind of a sleeper decision here, um, speechnow.org v. FEC, that I know is also playing a role in this. Can you just give us a brief outline of 
of some of those important decisions and how they're affecting um, the playing field right now? Sure. You know, Citizens United, that, that phrase um, comes from the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision, the one that struck down the corporate restriction on spending. But I think for a lot of people, I've, I've been around the country, and there's, there, there's an uproar about Citizens United. There's a huge movement growing and building to reverse it by a constitutional amendment. Um, and when, I, when people say Citizens United, in a lot of ways, they, they mean that whole collection of cases from Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, which is a 1977-76 case that, that struck down uh, parts of our uh, initial campaign finance laws passed in response to the corruption of the Watergate era uh, and came to be known as um, being equated with saying that money equals speech, and therefore we can't restrict unduly the spending of money in elections. And then, as you, as you said, the Speech Now case is a recent case actually following Citizens United, which helped um, build the way to the super PACs, which we now see so much of. The combination of all of these cases um, has, has, some people say, Citizens United, and they, they really are referring to all this problem where the Supreme Court has twisted the notion of what speech means in, in the First Amendment into essentially a, a policy preference, uh, a sort of libertarian view of, of politics. And it's not really libertarian once you let government-created corporations <laughs> run the show. But this notion that somehow regulation of election spending is banned by the Constitution when it's really not. Right. And so, so Citizens United is sort of the, the combination of the Buckley versus Vallejo money is speech with this notion of corporate rights. And, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's no better way, no better place to find uh, the consequences of this than OpenSecrets.org, uh, which Sheila will talk more <laughs> about. But I must say I, I relied upon it in my book. Uh, there's just fantastic data on there that really shows in, in clear graphic ways how what's happened as a result of these decisions right. is that a very few people and, a, and very few large corporations are essentially funding our politicians now. So we have... Um uh, corporations with personal hood rights. We've got money equated with speech in Buckley v. Vallejo. We've got speech now v. FEC in which um, you uh, you can't limit, put contribution limits on what an entity contributes to a PAC as long as the PAC is not contributing to the candidate but making only independent expenditures. And then finally, you have Citizens United, which allowed corporations to play in that game the same as, as individual voters. So, Sheila, where does that leave us? I mean, what is happening out there in campaign finance land in 2012? Well, I think what people are, are most kind of uh, focused on in this election, the theme of this election, if you will, is super PACs. Uh, thus far. So, uh, you know, over the last month of early state primaries, uh, we've seen uh, a total of $46 million spent to influence the vote in these early states, uh, by, spent by 318 super PACs. Of course, the majority of that was spent by just a handful of super PACs, those promoting a specific presidential candidate. And, of course, that raises another issue, that these ostensibly independent super PACs, which cannot, in theory, coordinate with the candidates, are very much, uh, in fact, uh, 
coordinated or at least associated with to a sufficient degree that they need not pick up the phone and say, here's our strategy for today. Um, so they're, they're working in, in tandem, and the donors certainly view them as an extension of the campaign. So we're seeing dozens of donors max out to the candidates and then go on to give big to their super PAC. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way to have your cake and eat it too. Yes, we have the limits. Yes, they're not coordinating, but in fact, in, in fact uh, these, these associated super PACs are, are pretty much carrying the ball for the candidates and particularly carrying the negative advertising so that the candidates can take the high road, they can appear to be more reasonable and pure, and, the, and then these super PACs do the dirty work of slinging mud with tens of millions of dollars. So far, again, they've spent $46 million, they've raised $98 million. And I think now we are going to start seeing the shift as the GOP field settles, uh, shakes out. I think we're going to start seeing a shift and, and more of the activity move to these more secretive nonprofit counterparts. So if uh, people are familiar with American Crossroads, they may know that it has a nonprofit 501c4, quote-unquote, social welfare organization called Crossroads GPS that so far has only reported spending $151 million. We know they've spent far in excess of that, millions and millions of dollars, but they need not report that spending uh, until uh, it, it falls uh, within the electionary communications window and then until they uh, are running independent expenditures. They're doing a lot of quote-unquote, again, I'm going to say quote-unquote a lot, <laughs> uh, supposed issue advocacy but uh, up until now, but clearly it's, it's very much... Uh, designed with an electoral focus. Uh, and uh, as we move again into the battle for the general, I think the super PACs may become less of an issue and these, the, the action may turn to these, uh, again, these nonprofit entities, which, to be fair, are on both sides. The uh, primary group uh, uh, supporting the Obama campaign is Priorities USA, uh, that is the nonprofit, and Priorities USA Action is the is the super PAC. And so these groups can go to a donor and say, we have a menu of options. Do you, do you like scrutiny? Do you like media attention? Maybe you want to get, you know, the, the, uh, the warm fuzzies or the, you know, the, you know, it's an ego thing to be able to give millions of dollars and get that seat at the head table. Or maybe it's inconvenient for you. Maybe you're a publicly traded corporation. You want to influence the election, but you don't want to risk the consumer backlash that some corporations uh, talked about as having a chilling effect on speech um, in the last cycle where Target Corporation uh, got singed by one of their uh, big donations. So if that's the case, then they can simply give uh, under the radar to these nonprofit entities, which can do much the same activity. Because they're corporations. Uh, because they are, if it's a 501c4 social welfare, it's a nonprofit, uh, but, it, but it has... Uh, the ability to spend, uh, you know, there's no Without clear limit. guidance on this, but, but essentially up to 49% of their money, you know, as long as they're not spending the majority of their money on political activity, uh, they can spend, of course, in the case of Crossroads and, and GPS, if it spends, if it raises the $240 million it's uh, it's predicted, uh, that gives a lot of latitude for these groups to have a big imprint on this election. So have we been, have you been able to see a, pretty dramatic difference in spending this year versus the last presidential election or in fundraising this year versus the last presidential election? Oh, yeah, it's a stark contrast. In fact, 2010 was a stark contrast. We measured a, 
340% increase in outside spending in 2010 as compared to 2006. Uh, and, and after so, Citizens United. Precisely, after, after Citizens United and so and Speech Now. Uh, so so the, these cases have had um, a, a marked uh, impact on, on where the money is coming from and going to and in what, in what uh, denominations. It's, it's big, big money. It's kind of back to the future. It's back to the soft money days, only it's not going to uh, the um, arguably more accountable national party committees. It's going to these unaccountable and, again, quasi or somewhat independent outside groups, which... Uh, are are playing fast and loose with the facts. Of course, we're all familiar with you know the the kinds of Willie Horton ads and that uh, ads that are are um, you know somewhere in the in the range of uh, stretching the facts to just complete fiction and 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 often really negative and that's and unfortunately uh, very effective because mm-hmm. they can throw a lot of money at that. Uh, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on Community Radio, WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is free speech, corporate money, and democracy. Our guests this morning are Jeff Clements, co-founder of Free Speech for People and author of the new book, Corporations Are Not People. And he's joined by Sheila Krumholtz, who's the executive director of the Center for Re- Responsive Politics. We're talking about you know, the dramatic increase in um, campaign spending and political fundraising post-Citizen United and how um, some of these independent spending groups are taking the negative um, attack ad route. And, you know, we've been following a little bit of news in the um, Senate race in Massachusetts where two of the candidates tried to sort of distance themselves or um, push off some of this independent expenditure. It leads me to the question, what about the candidates? Can the candidates refuse independent expenditures on their behalf? Do they have the free speech rights to denounce the offensive ads um, that are running to support or oppose them? You know, what what can the candidates do to push back on this if they don't like it? And I think mostly they don't. You know, in in my view, what the candidates uh, can do and, and, and really should do is is change, commit to changing the system. It's corruption. I mean, it is it, the 2010 election that Sheila mentioned, where suddenly we had hundreds of millions of dollars of unaccounted money pouring in. That's when we first started seeing unbelievable domination of the airwaves by these um, negative ads and other ads, uh, by, uh, by shadowy uh, front groups, really. Um, a corollary to that was the voter turnout. Close to 60% of Americans did not even bother to vote, and that who could have voted. So eligible voters, close to 60%, didn't vote. And and that those two things, I think, are related. That um, there's a difference between being a citizen and being a consumer. You know, who's watching these ads and then supposed to go and validate them by voting. And a lot of people want nothing to do with it. And that's kind of the breakdown of democracy we're seeing. And I think. Candidates have a responsibility to say how they're going to change it, not just uh, pretend that they're upset about the negative ad that their super PAC is running against their opponent, uh, but actually say we're going to support a constitutional amendment to reverse these these decisions, uh, and we're going to try to restore some equality of voices and equality of of voting to the system. And um, you know, I think Sheila mentioned it's both both parties, and I quite agree 
uh, that it's an, that it, the problem is not on one side or the other, and, and President Obama is um, going to use a super PAC too. Uh, but at least he said at the same time, his campaign made it clear that he supports a constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens mm-hmm. United. I think that the Supreme Court has kind of made the argument that these independent expenditures are not corrupting if they're not coordinated. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, do I'm the sorry. political insiders know where the money is coming from? And, like, is there a, um, a corrupting influence, if uh, you know? Absolutely there is. And you're right about what Citizens United, Justice Kennedy wrote the decision, a uh, five-to-four decision. And he made a series of statements. It wasn't even really an argument. He, made a, he, he asserted that uh, independent expenditures are not corrupting, in theory, because it's not a contribution directly to the campaign. It's an expenditure uh, that has a statement uh, for or against a candidate or other related statements to the campaign, but it's supposedly independent, and therefore the candidate supposedly doesn't know who's funding it, and, and supposedly there can't be a corrupting effect. Uh, he made a number of statements, including things like corporations won't uh, allow foreign money to come into the elections, which is actually happening now. That that didn't work out either. Um, but they really were were sort of deemed to be conclusions that just aren't true in the real world. I mean, uh, you know, the candidates, all of us know that Sheldon Adelson wrote a $5 million check to a PAC supporting Newt Gingrich. Are we supposed to pretend that Newt Gingrich doesn't know that and doesn't feel indebted to Sheldon Adelson? You know, all of us know, thanks in part to Open Secrets and others, that the Alpha Coal Company is giving money to American Crossroads. Um, the, the, a big global coal corporation is not doing that because they're civically minded. They're doing it to support the Republican candidates in the hopes of getting favorable policy. So it's absolutely corrupting, and I think we saw... Um, a very good uh, argument about why in the recent Montana Supreme Court case, where Montana Supreme Court uh, just upheld the Montana state law that keeps corporate money out of elections, it's going to face a very difficult road when it gets to the Supreme Court uh, because it is somewhat um, contradictory to Citizens United. Uh, but they explain very clearly how corporate money would, would did corrupt Montana elections until they had this law and why it's so necessary to, uh, to ensure that it doesn't come into the system like this. So, um, you know, that, that, that's how it, it corrupts. Uh, and it corrupts after the elections. The corporate money dominates the lobbying that happens in Washington. Uh, so it's not just at election time. It's what happens in between elections uh, when you have the Chamber of Commerce, which calls themselves a $200 million a year lobbying machine. They're perfectly happy to brag about that. They want politicians to know that, and they are, are wish to call the tune. And, and it's not just the chamber. It's virtually every industry group spends hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbying. And, and that, that affects what, <clears throat> excuse me, what happens in Washington and our state capitals, and it's related to then what happens in the fundraising game around election time. And I, I'd like to follow up on that just to say I think that really we have to remember that that is one of the um, pieces of this uh, this discussion that is as important that you know what happens after the election that that's when those who've really invested in the candidates and outside groups and parties come calling that you know they they're 
they're, they've got their handout marching up to Capitol Hill, and they are expecting to cash in on their investment because corporations, uh, trade associations, these executives who make up the vast majority of the money that is itemized that we can examine, are not doing it for altruistic you know, good government reasons. They're not doing it to support democracy. Corporations don't have that as their mission. They have one mission, and it is to return a profit to their shareholders. So it would not be logical for them to invest if there is no expectation of a return on investment. So I think we have to be uh, informed about uh, what the, who the players are, what they want, what they're spending, who they're giving it to, what, they're, what those candidates are are um, doing in exchange for that, what promises they're making on the campaign trail. But it's kind of, it's the day after election, and literally the fundraising starts the day after the election, when uh, those, you know, those who've invested in politics um, stand to collect. Mm -hmm. And it's very much to the disadvantage also that they do, throughout the political uh, cycle, hold uh, this sword of Damocles over, you know, hold this control over any politician who should dare to, um, to oppose them because they have the threat if they have deep pockets, if they're a big trade association and they have membership corporations, me corporations as members that they can uh, call upon to come in in the 11th hour of a campaign and take out an upstart politician who won't carry water uh, for them in Congress. So it's a threat, and, and, it, and then it, it spurs yet further um, uh, constant can, you know, the constant campaign cycle and, and the war chest must be there, not just for uh, thwarting potential competition, uh, of which there is, you know, is, is often very little financially viable competition, but now you've got this additional threat of any outside in interest group can come in, swoop in in the 11th hour, and take out a campaign because they only had a $1.5 million, you know, bank account instead mm -hmm. of the $3 million that the outside group could spend. And, I mean, is it a trend with some of these public welfare nonprofit groups um, getting into campaigns? And, I, you know, we saw this in Maine with um, a lawsuit challenging the National Organization for Marriage for failing to disclose their work in a ballot question a couple of years ago. But, I mean, do we have a trend in which these nonprofit organizations raise money for political activity and don't have to disclose their donors so that, in a way, the public has less information about who the donors are, but the political insiders still know exactly what's going on? I mean, is that making your job harder, Sheila? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, it's not only making it harder, it's making it impossible. We, we see now where the money's coming from uh, that is funding these super PACs, although even that disclosure, which was required in the speech now, the FEC decision, uh, even that disclosure is inadequate. It's not timely. These PACs had shifted in the... In, <laughs> in w w during the uh, reporting uh, uh, cycle for December, when most of these uh, super PACs should have, and particularly those associated with the presidential candidates, when they should have been preparing their reports for the FEC about where their donations had come from for the previous six months, uh, they were able to take uh, advantage of lax guidance from the FEC uh, and shift their uh, filing frequency from quarterly to monthly, which sounds like a good thing, in, in, but in practice was something that they, a trick they used to avoid having to disclose 
until January 31st instead of having to file in December prior to these important uh, early primary states. So uh, the, the, dis- the, the lack of disclosure is there even for those that ostensibly disclose, even for the super PACs. Super PACs are collecting money from shell corporations. You know, we've, we're, that's something that investigative reporters can, can uh, a thread they can pull at to unravel the story, but, uh, but they're often getting receipts from the nonprofits. So you'll see a super PAC receiving a million dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars from themselves. And that's, of course, inadequate trans- transparency, inadequate information. But on top of that, and of greater concern, again, are these nonprofit um, counterparts, which are raising money in complete secrecy, which will never have to disclose those donations. And I think that's where, uh, if, again, a publicly traded corporation or a big corporation that isn't known as an ideologically motivated uh, donor, where they're likely to be to be making their contributions, not to the super PACs, which can be scrutinized. It's, right. it's making it impossible. And so, I mean, that corporation gives in secret, nobody knows, but they can still whisper in the halls when lobbying, you know, we were the ones. Um, is that what we fear is going to be the corrupting mechanism here? Well, I think many would say, if, you know, they can whisper all they want, and some people might whisper that they made contributions that, that they, in fact, did not make. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think for the politicians, the, the point is you never know. Right. <laughs> you never know which direction it's coming from. And more importantly, the public doesn't know, so they can't hold their politicians accountable. If they're passing policies that are favorable to a specific industry or company, um, you know, they might be doing so because of perceived uh, influence of a company or industry that the public has, is not, you know, information the public is not privy to. So how can we as citizens do our job to hold our politicians accountable and to make sure that policy is being passed not, on, not based on the money but based on the merits of the idea? Jeff, you mentioned the money. I was just going to say, you mentioned the Mon- Montana case working its way up through the courts, and you said there wasn't really much um, hope for that in the Supreme Court. You know, is there any chance that, court cases working their way up through the states, the district and the circuit courts now are going to have a chance to overturn any of the seminal cases that are shaping this environment. What do you uh, think, Jeff? But, yeah, I can, I can uh, address that just before I do. I just wanted to add one more point on the, on the whispering that happens. Um, whispering is actually much more subtle than how Washington really works. I, uh, I was speaking with a, a U.S. senator last week who said that the uh, lobbyists will come in uh, and show a hit an, an attack ad essentially on that senator and say, uh, you know, if we really love you to give some reconsideration to your position on X Y Z, say the Wall Street, you know, financial regulation bill, um, and just want to show you, you know, what we're intending to do if you don't, and they'll roll out the ad and then say, you know, we'll have four million dollars behind that. Uh, if, if, if um, we're not able to come to terms, so it's it's not whispering; it's more like a sledgehammer. I was going to say it yeah. sounds like extortion. Yeah, and then they, at that point, you know, they don't have to do that too many times before you don't even need to do that. Right. The the, the uh, politicians are quite controlled without needing to have the dots connected for them. Oh, um, so that's why it's, it is so important to push back, and the pushback needs to happen with a constitutional amendment campaign. I think because this court my view, will not um, suddenly see the light and say, oh, we were wrong in Citizens United. I think there's a five to four majority to just stick with this um, catastrophic approach 
to campaign finance and, and to um, creating civil rights for corporations rather than people. Um, but nevertheless, the pushback in the courts is important. Um, it is important uh, because partly for what Montana did, it, it is a, the best education campaign is uh, a debate, and there's a great debate among uh, dissenting voices right now. And, not, and it's not just you know, citizens, it's not just activists, it's, it's attorneys general, it's judges, it's state judges, it's federal judges, and that's important to help um, over time change the jurisprudence that led to this. Uh, so the Montana Supreme Court case, I think it will have a hard time, although you never know. I mean, there is, Montana uh, did make a very good case about how it actually corrupts in the state of Montana when you have unregulated corporate spending. And if the Supreme Court were to actually look at the facts rather than impose an ideology, I think they'd have a hard time um, just simply asserting that corporate independent expenditure spending doesn't doesn't um, have a corrupting influence, given the record in the Montana case. But, you know, we also have dissenting opinions and concurring opinions now coming out. Um, Justice Guido Calabresi in the Second Circuit, in a recent case uh, involving the New York City campaign finance laws, um, said that in, in an opinion uh, directly addressing the, the, pro- the assumption that the court makes um, that that there is no such thing as a government interest in ensuring that there's some equal access to speech in, in elections, that this assumption that just more money equals more speech, which is not true. Um, he, he said he is absolutely confident Citizens United will be reversed um, either by a constitutional amendment or by a change in the court. And he said, mm. says, and he's a very distinguished jurist, former dean of Yale Law School, and he's saying that in an opinion. So I don't think that we'll get a case coming up to the Supreme Court that will immediately overturn these cases, but I think we will continue to have that kind of vigorous pushback in the courts and um, among state judges, federal judges, and and all of the American people through the amendment resolution process that will eventually, and, and hopefully sooner, lead to a reversal of Citizens United and the related cases. So before I open the lines up for listener call-in, Jeff, I just want to um, give you a chance to talk a little bit about the constitutional amendment process. You know, I know that that you and your organization are working on one particular amendment. I know there are some other amendments that are being proposed by other organizations and elsewhere. But uh, just talk to our listeners a little bit about what the constitutional amendment process could do and what some of the remedies are being proposed. And uh, take just a few minutes on that, and then we'll invite listener call in for questions. Yeah, so the constitutional amendment process uh, is Article 5 of the Constitution. It requires two-thirds of Congress to vote on the resolution that then is ratified by three-quarters of the states. Um, Or we could have a convention, but the 27 amendments we've done so far have been through that process of two-thirds of Congress, then ratified by three-quarters of the states. And actually, at Free Speech for People, we uh, do support, and I talk about in the book, the People's Rights Amendment, which overturns the fabrication, really. Uh, it wasn't in the Constitution originally, and there was no such thing as so-called corporate speech until the late 1970s. Um, so it overturns that idea that corporations, as corporations, have constitutional rights, and that person in the Constitution means human Human, pe- human people, real people. Um, but we also support other amendments. We're not, you know, this, this is an important debate, and, 
um, we'll get the right language eventually. And you're right, there's now close to a dozen different amendment approaches in the Senate and the House, um, and they get at both turning, overturning Buckley versus Vallejo and overturning Citizens United. Um, so we support continued uh, debate and, and, uh, as, and things like the Udall Amendment, which uh, essentially restores to Congress and the states the ability of, of we the people to, to regulate the spending of money in elections. Um, so all of those are, are good ideas. And we also are working with uh, a lot of other groups working on this across the country. And there's big news on this. Um, just yesterday, I'm sorry, Saturday, uh, the New Mexico Senate voted 20 to 9 uh, on a resolution uh, that we work with uh, Common Cause and others in New Mexico to condemn Citizens United and call on Congress to send an amendment to the states for ratification. The New, Me- New Mexico House had already voted that in, so New Mexico is now uh, the second state on record demanding that Congress send the amendment to the states. And we're pushing resolutions in Massachusetts and all states across the country, uh, as well as towns and cities. And in Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon, and lots of towns in between uh, have actually passed resolutions demanding that Congress send an amendment to the states for ratification. So that's some of the activity and some of the process we see for eventually, and, and hopefully again quite soon, getting... Congress to send a people's rights amendment to the states that, that gets us not just clean and fair elections again, but actually um, addresses the other problem of corporations abusing constitutional rights to strike down environmental laws, public health laws, things like that. At this point, I think I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Jeff Clements, co-founder of Free Speech for People and author of the book Corporations Are Not People, and Sheila Krumholtz, who is executive director of the Center for Responsive Politics. Our topic today is free speech, money, and democracy. If you have a question for one of our guests, join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. Um, some would argue that full disclosure is the answer. Some argue that full disclosure just makes voters more cynical and more tuned out, less engaged in the process. Um, I know that there are moves by um, the uh, James Madison Center for Free Speech t- to push for anonymous donations to political campaigns. What do you guys, uh, our guests, think about um, the value of or the limitations of disclosure to address some of these problems. Sheila, why don't I put that to you? Well, I'll jump in quickly because I <laughs> yeah. think Jeff will have a more, uh, you know, uh, legal, legalistic uh, view. But I, uh, my own personal view, is, and we are not a policy group, we don't put forth recommendations for how to reform the system, but for the disclosure process, which we think is, absolutely essential. I don't think that secret donations will inspire confidence. We had secret bags of cash uh, uh, in in days of yore, and I don't think that inspired, uh, in fact, I think that inspired more cynicism than the, the money which you can actually view. I, I think if people can see the money and are attuned to the policy debates and are active, that's when the money is least powerful. It's when it's secret and it's uh, big that people feel the 
the game is rigged and why why bother why vote why participate why care um, I, uh, so I do think that uh, disclosure is absolutely essential. It provides the foundation upon which uh, people can, uh, the, the evidence upon which further reform can be made and uh, upon which uh, the, the citizens can rely uh, to get engaged on policy, in policy debates and on issues and, and reach out to their representatives in Washington. Um, I think it's essential. It's not enough. It's not the end of the job. It's the beginning. That you need to start with the facts, facts which everyone agrees are the facts that which are unassailable, uh, and go from there. And I think it's interesting that we get a lot of you know our uh, users at OpenSecrets.org are really run the gamut from liberal to conservative. Uh, I think everybody is concerned about the undue influence, the disproportionate influence that money buys uh, special interests, be they corporate or union or, or uh, uh, executives. I mean, again, most of the money that we can see that comes in amount, denominations of greater than $200 is not coming from the rank-and-file America. It's not coming in, you know, 20 and $50 amounts. It's coming in, uh, you know, checks with lots of zeros at the end of it. That's not a natural act for, uh, for a person to make to politics. Sure, to charity, yes, but... So these people are giving with uh, a goal in mind, and it's, I think, uh, largely an economic goal based upon who these people are. These, these are. This is a very tiny, elite set of Americans that are giving the vast majority of the money, and, and that money comes with strings. So if people can see where it's coming from uh, and understand how it flows to and through and, and affects politics, they can do something about it. But disclosure is the essential beginning. It's not the end. Sheila, before I turn the question back to Jeff about the um, opportunities and limits of disclosure, I'll give you a chance to just name the website of your organization where people can go and, and get some disclosure. Well, it's OpenSecrets.org, and on our homepage you can see a kind of a graphic feature panel. The last, uh, it's a rotating panel, and the last panel is uh, specifically a slide share uh, document on the money in uh, kind of resulting from the Citizens United decision. And um, uh, it's called, it actually links to a page that's, that's called the Citizens United Decision Profoundly Affects Political Landscape. So it, that gives people, I think, a bird's eye view of the impact that uh, these, these decisions and the Citizens United decision specifically have had. Thank you. Jeff, what do you think on the limits and opportunities of disclosure in this context? Uh, well, my answer on disclosure can be short, which is essentially I agree entirely with what Sheila said about mm -hmm. that. Uh, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's absolutely necessary, and it's not enough. Um, so there's no excuse for not having disclosure. Um, the amazing thing is uh, it was yet another thing that the Citizens United Court, Justice Kennedy, sort of blithely assumed uh, that, oh, well, we'll still have disclosure. Only Justice Thomas thought that disclosure was a constitutional problem. Uh, that part of the decision was actually eight to one uh, in, in favor of uh, Congress and the states still having the constitutional authority to dis require disclosure of, of spending in elections. And, and of course, that's, that's how it should be. Um, nevertheless, the Disclose Act came up for a vote, and even though all the politicians uh, who, who said that they were against campaign spending regulation and that disclosure was the, was the answer, 
then decided that disclosure wasn't the answer, and they voted against it. Hmm. Uh, the Disclose Act failed. It got filibustered in the Senate. Um, so we don't have any disclosure. And we, I mean, we have some disclosure, but for the reason Sheila said, we don't have an effective um, disclosure uh, system because of the misuse of uh, 501c4 and other corporate fronts. Um, so we, we absolutely should have disclosure laws, and the sooner the better. Uh, but it, the reason it's not enough is, is, is there's many different reasons why it's not enough. Um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the, the problem we have, a big part of the problem right now, isn't that we don't know who's, who's spending. Um, we and the politicians do know who's spending, and it's it just happens to be not the vast majority, 90-something percent plus of Americans aren't the ones doing it. Uh, they're the ones watching it, and it, and it is destructive, uh, yeah. even if you know that that spending's going on. But the other reason it's not enough... Um, is, is, well, there's two other reasons. One is, again, the Chamber of Commerce and many corporations are all too happy to let uh, the politicians know what they're doing. Uh, they tend to be the big global corporations who don't necessarily sell directly to people because people get outraged, as Target found out when they spent money on elections in Minnesota. Uh, but when you're a big coal company who sells to utility corporations, uh, you don't really care what people think. Jeff, let me interrupt for just a second. Yeah. You were talking about the two reasons why disclosure is not enough. I'm going to just ask you to wrap that thought up. We have a caller waiting, so when you're finished, we'll put the caller Great. on the air. Well, the, sec the second reason is simply that the problem isn't just election spending. The problem is uh, the constitutional uh, creation of corporate people. Uh, one of those corporate persons is Monsanto, for instance, uh, which has the right not to uh, disclose when they're using genetically, bovine, genetically modified bovine growth hormone or tobacco corporations, which have a so-called you know, speech right to prevent warning labels, uh, graphic warning labels on cigarettes. Many other examples where it's not just election spending, it's, it's really about corporate power. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jeff. All right, um, let's go to our caller. Um, give us your first name, anyway. Tell us where you live. Um, keep your question or comment brief so we can get back to our guests. And go ahead with your question. You're on the air. Uh, this is uh, Ed from Bar Harbor. And I'm especially interested in the uh, how to remedy this situation in a, in a very long-term way, which looks like it would take a constitutional amendment. And I've looked at some of them on the... Uh, on the internet and uh, move to amend seems to uh, uh, deal with a lot of most of the problems that is speech is money and uh, corporations are not people and uh, uh, the uh, the point is made that it's such a huge problem to uh, get a constitutional amendment that we ought to deal with as many issues as we can in it and uh, the question I have has to do with uh, the various proponents and how willing they are to uh, join together and get one single uh, vehicle that can go through Congress and to the states. Is there too many egos involved, or uh, is there a real willingness to deal with this issue? Thanks for your question, Ed. What do you say, Jeff? Uh, there's absolutely a, a willingness to deal with this issue, and I, I don't think it's egos. Um, uh, you know, I, I was speaking in Portland, Oregon this weekend uh, w w with Move to Amend. Uh, they do have an excellent uh, 
amendment proposal um, that covers both the corporate power problem and the um, so-called money is speech problem. So they, they have an excellent proposal. We uh, are working together with freespeechforpeople.org, movetoamend.org, many others. Uh, you can find them at unitedforthepeople.org with the number four, unitedforthepeople.org, um, where you'll see all the groups working together. I have a blog about this on, on corporationsarenotpeople.com, the last website I'll give you. Um, because uh, I actually think it's a healthy thing that we have different language right now, different approaches, uh, and we just continue to support the idea of resolutions moving forward to uh, demand a constitutional amendment. Um, and Congress will debate these in committee. We'll get a chance to get the best language. And I would say, you know, it may be that these are two problems that are related but not the same problem, and they're trying to put it all in one amendment might not be the best solution in the end. And, and we can do two amendments. And, and that may sound like a harder lift, but I think, again, we have to look at what Americans have done before in, in, in the turn of the century battle with corporate power and undue money in elections. Um, they not only did the Tillman Act, which banned corporate spending uh, in elections, but they did four amendments. And you know, one of those was overturning the Supreme Court's holding that we can't have a progressive income tax in America, overturning the holding that women didn't have the right to vote, uh, changing the election of senators to be direct election rather than appointment in the state. And so, forth, yeah. um, and so you know, they, they didn't just do one amendment and then say, uh, well, I guess women will have to wait to have the right to vote. And they, but they knew they can't put them all in, into a single amendment because they're not exactly the same problem. I think we face a moment like that in our democracy where we're kind of remaking it for a new century and we should just continue to all work together um, and not worry if it's right now in two separate amendment proposals or one proposal, but continue to move this debate forward, and we'll get the right language in the end. This is the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Jeff Clements, co-founder of Free Speech for People and author of the book Corporations Are Not People, and Sheila Krumholtz, Executive Director of the Center for Responsive Politics. We probably have time for one or two listener calls yet this morning. Um, you can call us toll-free, 866-625-9378, or locally, 469-0500. Um, let me ask you um, both, if you're a citizen um, in your community or in your state and you're deeply concerned about this problem, what can you do in your local community or in your state um, if, if citizens are wanting to get organized uh, on this problem where can they go well I think Jeff is going to be the source for where they can go we're in, uh, the Center for Responsive Politics is a nonpart uh, nonpartisan nonprofit uh, group that does not lobby uh, on anything we, we do promote and advocate uh, effective meaningful disclosure but I would just start by saying you can, what you can do in your communities is first uh, become informed about the issues by uh, looking at the websites that Jeff and, and, and you have pointed out. Um, but do also check out websites like opensecrets.org for the federal uh, information about where the money is coming from and going to. Look at followthemoney.org for information on state and, and local politics, initiatives and referenda. Uh, OpenSecrets.org also follows the lobbying, which is kind of the other side of the influence buying coin. So you, there are a whole host of 
resources out there that I think people need to be aware of and also uh, know that these are credible sources, that we're, we're, <laughs> we're not cooking the numbers to uh, skew to one side or the other. Again, a, a lot of our audience is conservative because many conservatives and, and uh, independents are, are just as concerned about money's influence in Washington. But I'll let Jeff uh, respond to the question about what they can do. Yeah, and um, so, so first sign the amendment resolution at freespeechforpeople.org. Um, check out the resources there. You can download resolutions. Um, check out movetoamend.org, which also has uh, great tools on it, and unitedforthepeople.org, um, and get involved. And there's several things. In Massachusetts, more, more than 10 towns have now passed resolutions in, in town meetings. Uh, demanding a constitutional amendment to clean up the system. Shelley Pingree is actually a co-sponsor of the People's Rights Amendment. Uh, it would be good to have uh, the, the other uh, main representative on board as well, uh, Mr. Michaud, on the uh, People's Rights Amendment and on the uh, uh, Betty Sutton Amendment, which gets uh, to the money is not speech issue. Uh, so we need to ask our representatives to co-sponsor those constitutional amendments um, hopefully, Maine can do a resolution in the Maine uh, State House, in the Maine State Legislature, calling on Congress to do a resolution and uh, work with your your neighbors um, to to do this just exactly what you're doing uh, today and having this conversation. Have more conversations. Ask your town to sponsor resolutions, and uh, let's get our our senators on board too. That's this great. isn't a this Thanks. isn't a uh, partisan issue, and there's no reason Republicans and Democrats can't come together um, to get this done. We have another caller. Um, let us have your first name, where you live, and go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Hi, this is Gray from Hancock. Great show. Thank you, and I thank the guests for taking time to talk to uh, WERU listeners. Uh, a quick, quick, quick question about uh, strategy. Uh, you, uh, we do have two issues here, corporate personhood and free speech is money. Uh, as a strategy, wouldn't it make more sense to uh, try to eliminate the free speech is money thing, and then you might be able to clean up the, ele the, the elections and the quality of candidates might change, or at least their uh, political affiliation might change on the issue of corporate personhood? I'll hang up and listen on the air. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for your question. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you for the question and, and the comments. Um, so, you know, my view is we won't know the winning strategy until we win. We have to push all of these things, um, that we have to push uh, the idea that um, the overturning Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, ref the refusal of the court to see that money isn't just speech, uh, that it's also power. Um, we have to overturn the corporate personhood issue. Um, you know, for some people, it's more. There's more a more visceral reaction to the notion that corporations are people under our constitution, and that's the one that they drives them. For others, it's the idea that you know we can't get anything done unless we get the money out of politics uh, and get public money into politics. And they may be right too. Um, again, I look at, at past successes when we've had big waves of reform, and I think we're due for another one. Uh, people pushed on all of them, and we can you know we never knew which one which door opened first or which one oh got across the finish line first uh, but we would see a wave of several reforms following uh, one after another good looks like we have another caller um, let, give us your first name tell us where you live and go ahead with your question or comment you're on the air 
Um, hello, my name is Kathy from Waldo. Uh, this is kind of a broader look. Um, we not only have the corporate uh, problem usurping our constitutional rights, but we just have the NDAA, the, the National Defense Authorization uh, thing, which uh, is, is uh, taking away our right to um, not be imprisoned uh, by the military upon suspicion that we are terrorists, Articles 4, 5, and 6 of the Bill of Rights. The feeling is that we are so overwhelmed with the need to do something immediately. Is the Occupy movement, do you think, uh, a proper vehicle? Uh, can you comment on that? Jeff, I think you're probably the most likely commenter on that. Go ahead. Um, Sure. But we've only got two minutes left, so... Um. Very quickly, I think the answer is yes. Occupy and other movements, um, even part of the Tea Party movement, is partly a response to that same, to the, to the, um, you know, the concern and the question uh, that really we are losing the notion of government of the people, um, that, uh, that we're a republic uh, of free people. And so that concerns the right, concerns the left. <clears throat> Some will find the Occupy movement to be the answer. Others will find segments of the Tea Party to be the answer, but we, we do need to be um, much more vigilant, I think, about whether we are turning into a global corporate empire or whether we're going to be a free republic of equal people. Thank you both so much. We're starting to run out of time this morning, um, so I'm going to give you each just a few seconds to say a couple comments. And Jeff, I know you're coming to Maine at the end of the month. Maybe you plug your event there and then Sheila next. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to be in Portland uh, with the Maine Citizens for Clean Elections and others at uh, the Bayside Bowl in Portland at 58 Alder Street on February 27th, 5 o'clock. Longfellow Books, a bookstore in Portland, will be there selling corporations are not people. It's going to be a real fun time and a real good way to connect with others working on this issue. Thanks, Jeff. February 27th in Portland. Say goodbye, Sheila. Goodbye. Thanks, all. Thank you very much. We're out of time. Thank you to our guests this morning, Jeff Clements, co-founder of Free Speech for People, and Sheila Krumholtz, executive director of the Center for Responsive Politics. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM Community Radio. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. If you have questions for a topic or guests on a future Democracy Forum or to join the League of Women Voters, Email us at demforum3 at, demforum at gmail.com or visit us at lwvme.org. Our next show will be 10 o'clock, March 12th. We'll see you here then.